last week, I introduced our series for this year entitled uh, Discovering the Mission of God by looking at a recent Pew Research released back in December, just three or four weeks ago, of where Pew, in surveying uh, the religious affiliation of, of Americans today, said that currently about three in ten, 29% to be exact, of United States adults are religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. That's a term that that the Pew Research uh, coined actually several years ago. And so they always ask, you know, what do you believe in? Are you a believer in God? And now 29% of Americans say, no, we're, we're really either atheists or agnostics or really nothing in particular. And I introduced you to an author last week who is a kind of a representation of these nuns. His name is Alex Rosenberg. And, and Dr. Rosenberg is a, uh, a teacher of philosophy at Duke University, a professor there, and wrote about 10 years ago a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality. He is considered one of the top atheists in the United States today. And one of the things that Rosenberg does when he's interviewed is he simply talks about, very honestly, the implications of being an atheist. That's one thing, when I listen to him, and I've listened to him in, in multiple circumstances, he is very honest, as an atheist, that if you're going to be an atheist, boy, you just kind of have to look at life very different from those of us who grew up with faith. He, he would call himself a secularist. In fact, a lot of people today kind of shun away from that name, atheist, and so you'll hear someone say, in fact, I had someone here a few months ago said to me, you know, I'm, an, I, I'm a secularist. And I knew exactly what they meant by that when they said it. And basically what Rosenberg argues is quite fascinating. He would say that he's a believer in scientism. In other words, uh, that's kind of his faith. And he says science has provided or will provide answers for all of life's questions. Now that was given in an interview that he gave about four years ago. Science will eventually answer all of life's questions. And then a few questions later, he began to pull back from that. Fudge just a little bit. Notice what he says. Is there a difference between right and wrong, good and bad? He said there's not a moral difference between them. In other words, morality is a construct that we've made that really is an illusion that humanity has. That in reality, there's no such thing as morality. Notice what he says further along in this uh, interview. I don't think that it, science, is in a position to tell you what we ought and ought not do. Now he said science would answer all of our questions, but it really is in no position to tell us what is right or what is wrong. Notice as he goes further in this, he says in what the, he says, uh, it is in a position to tell you why we've done it and what the consequences of continuing or failing to do it are, okay? He says, in other words, science can tell us, tell us here's what we did and here was the consequences of it and whether or not you want to do it again or not. But notice the last thing he says. But it can't adjudicate ultimate questions of value. In other words, it cannot make a judgment on those ultimate questions 
of right and wrong, of morality, because that's simply an illusion of our minds. Now, the difference between that view, the secularist view, and those of us who are Christians is that we recognize that at the earliest of age, we recognize that there is something called right and wrong. I mentioned this, I think, in Sunday school class last week. This is one of my favorite ads right now. It's an AT&T ad. And it's an ad based on, and you've probably experienced this, based on the fact that they finally decided to give existing customers the same thing as new customers. I'm on Verizon right now. Okay? I'm on Verizon. I was on AT&T for a long time until I needed a new phone. And AT&T had a deal. You buy one phone, you get one phone free. Except it was good only to who? New customers. And, and I looked online, I, I, I tried to find, surely they'll, they'll offer it to existing customers. And, and I felt like this little girl right here. Because AT&T finally wised up when a lot of people went over to Verizon, I guess. I, who knows? But anyway, in this particular ad... The girl in the advertisement gives the little girl this green sucker. And then says, how would you feel if I gave the best deal I had? And then look at the sucker her older brother gets. Anybody remember what she says immediately? It's, that's not fair. And by the way, anybody that works the playground in any elementary school hears this all the time. Right? I mean, all you got to do is go to a bunch of little five and six and seven-year-olds out playing on the playground, and you'll hear, I miss so-and-so, miss so-and-so, and then so-and-so broke the line, you know. And, and let's just face it, when you're in the first grade, the worst thing you can do is break the line when you're in line to go up the slide. I mean, that is as wrong as it gets. And, and, and so there is this sense of right and wrong that we have from our earliest ages. I mean, that's what's amazing about this. And yet for those of us who are Christians, we're kind of like, of course there's a right and wrong. Of course there's a morality. Because all you got to do is turn to the earliest pages of the Bible. And last week, I, I mentioned this principle here. I think it was first said by Augustine, but it's been repeated by so many other people. And I love the image that it sets. The Holy Scriptures are shallow enough for a child to wade in them and deep enough for an elephant to swim in them. And that's the case of the story we're going to look at today. It's a story that we would teach in any of our first and second, third and fourth classes here at church. And if we're not careful as adults, that's all it is, is a story for little children. And yet if we go back and just pause, if we go back and begin to unpack it just a little bit, we discover that actually there's so much more there that just kind of blows your mind. As I oftentimes say, if you want to really explore this, you better not have your waders on. You better put on your scuba diving gear because you're going to go down deep. Genesis began, and we looked at it last week, with the creation of Adam and Eve. Placed in a garden, and at the end of chapter 2, everything is perfect. But it doesn't take long as you look at the text, as you move into chapter 3 to realize just how quickly it goes from perfection to the very opposite of perfection. 
And of course, it's the Bible's way of saying, is there a biblical principle of ought and ought not? Of course there is. Again, I don't think that science is in a position to tell you what we ought or ought not to do. It can't adjudicate ultimate questions of value. And we as Christians say, it might not can, but the Bible does. And that's why it's so important as we reflect on the mission of God that we spend some time unpacking some of these incredibly important teachings that if we're not careful as adults, we see them only as children's stories. And yet if we could go back and just think for a few moments, we we realize very quickly, wow, this is anything but a children's story. Genesis 2 begins with the story of two trees. Now, most of the time, we don't pay attention to the two trees. We pay attention to one of the trees, the tree of life. And by the way, it begins with two trees, but in Revelation chapter 22, it ends with just the one tree. Because something amazing happens from Genesis chapter 2 to Revelation chapter 22. And that is the disappearance of the second of the two trees. But it's that second one that is so fascinating. God plants a garden. He takes the man and he puts him in the garden. He causes all kinds of trees to grow up out of the ground. Trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle is this simple verse. Again, something that a lot of us learned when we were children if we went to Sunday school. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life. That's the one you find at the end of the Bible. But there's a second tree. Strange tree. In fact, if you just stop for a moment and you think, what in the world is going on here? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Man didn't know what evil was. New concept. Concept that all of us are familiar with. But a concept as far as the Bible is concerned, brand new. Here's a tree, but it's a tree of good and evil. And the story that follows is a story about that tree. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. We talked about free will. Again, if you go back to Rosenberg, is there a free will? Of course not. Everything is simply a determination of chemicals and you know mathematical equations. You can't help but do what you do. There is no free choice. The Bible says we are free which makes adjudication of immoral acts quite interesting, right? I mean, here lately, all we see on TV are these real important, you know, uh, uh, very, very famous cases of, of people doing things they shouldn't do, and should they have done it, should they not? Atheists would say they had no control. Believers in God said, of course they had control. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not. You're free to. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know the end result. Another word introduced for the first time, because you'll surely die. What is death? I mean, Eve didn't know what death is. Brand new concept. Evil, death, concepts we're all very familiar with. But as far as Scripture is concerned, being introduced for the first time. And the ought and ought not, morals, are very clearly set forward. And so we go to the story 
A story that, again, you just wade in as children. I mean, you know the story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. I mean, right off the bat, you got the snake. And I don't know about you, but I, I think of all the way back then, if, if Adam and Eve had had the same concern about snakes that I had, they'd never sinned. Right? I mean, all I've got to do is see a snake. And I'm going the other direction. Rodney, I don't know if I ever told you, but I'm over in the Valley of Elah, there in Israel. And uh, we're kind of looking around. You know, this is where uh, David killed Goliath. And, and uh, am I right on that, Valley of Elah? Okay, I am getting that. And, and, and I've wandered away from my group, Rodney. i just kind of looking around. I'm like, wow, this is so amazing. And I went to step, and I discovered that they still have snakes over there. A big snake to which I immediately turned and went the other direction. You know, I didn't try to have a conversation. I didn't try to do anything else. I just fled. This snake comes. And of course, what's fascinating about it is that if you read the rest of the Old Testament, the serpent kind of disappears. He's in the background, but he disappears. You don't have other writers of the Old Testament going back and saying, you remember the snake back in Genesis chapter 3? But when you get to the end of the Bible, to Revelation, the serpent is everywhere. In fact, if you turn over to Revelation 12, 9, that great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent, John says. I mean, he goes back and he links this, this dragon, this ancient serpent, this devil, the one we call Satan, the one who leads the whole world astray, including you and me, goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Peter would put it this way. Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy. Other translations say your adversary, your opponent, your great enemy, your accuser. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And for the first time, our enemy, I mean, I don't know that Adam and Eve knew they had an enemy. I mean, what's an enemy? But they did. And we have an enemy, and he's introduced for the first time, and he's still as active today in my life as he was in their life, and I suspect in your life as well. As much as I enjoy the supper every Sunday, and I do, I'm also reminded every, every Sunday of the enemy and how the enemy is still at work in my life. And how much I'm in need of the body that was sacrificed and the blood that was shed. I mean, that reality is still so vivid. I mean, and here he's introduced for the first time. And of course, he, he, he begins to speak to the woman. Again, talking snakes, I mean, children's stories make sense all the time. Talking snakes for adults is a little strange. But again, Adam and Eve, you know, why couldn't snakes speak? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And thus began Satan's great scheme, his plan. The first of all the temptations introduced for the very first time. And of course he's gotten so good at it, at least in my life. I don't know about your life. But we see again our enemy and then the tools that he used, the schemes that he plays with. And notice... It is true that God has forbidden you, or excuse me, this is from the voice. Is it true that God has forbidden you to eat fruits from the trees of the garden? 
asking a question with just enough emphasis as to create doubt in the mind of the first woman and the first man. And by the way, let me just mention, Adam is present. That's one of the things I think sometimes we miss. And, and of course, Eve responds with, we may eat tree, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. Now, of course, a lot of debate, and, and that's true, by the way, of every text that you see in Genesis chapter 3. Every one of them is the source of debate. And, and one of the things here is, did God really say that you can't touch it? Or did Adam tell her you can't touch it? I mean, I suspect if I'd been Adam and God said, if you eat of this tree, you'll die, I probably would have said to June, hey, don't eat, we better not even touch it. And so I don't know if God said it or if he didn't say it. It really doesn't matter in the text. What does matter is that Satan responds just as quickly, you will not certainly die. Yeah, here you have Satan at his best. Satan doing what he does best. The essence of every temptation, the lie, is introduced for the first time. You see, one of the things interesting about sin is that every sin, every sin, is based on a lie that either you or me believe. Every one of them. When I was early in my ministry, I, I read a book called The Road Less Traveled by a psychologist who uh, was very active in the 70s and 80s named M. Scott Peck. And, and Dr. Peck was an atheist. An atheist who got involved in counseling and in the process of counseling people had to come to the conclusion that there was something called evil. Nothing else explained what he was coming up against. And, and the more he studied it, the more he eventually convinced himself there was a God and eventually became a believer in Jesus. Well, after writing the book, The Road Less Traveled, he wrote another book called The People of the Lie. And in that book, M. Scott Peck says that everything that we do that messes up our life begins with us believing a lie. And boy, it just opened my eyes up to what Scripture, of course, had always taught. John 8, Jesus, in the discussion with some Jews who had once believed in him, but somehow had and maybe made the decision he's not the Messiah that we thought he was going to be, got into an argument about who their father was, who Jesus' father was, who their father. Notice Jesus, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Fascinating description there of Satan. Not holding to the truth. And then you get into the essence of what Satan is. Notice what Jesus says. For there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We're going to be looking at this later on in the year as we talk about how do we move from being people who've been corrupted by Satan into being people who've been restored into the image of God. And the answer is we have to stop believing the lies. Unfortunately, that's not the case with Adam and Eve. He goes on and he says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Now what should hit us here is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You see, Adam and Eve were already like God. Here's Satan saying to them, lying to them, You're not 
like God, not at least like you should be like God. And, and of course, you know, God's thinking, yes, they are. I created them in my likeness. I created them in my image. That's who they are inside. And so Satan lies about the fact that you're not like God who created you. And of course, the end result is Eve looks, looks good, probably will taste good. And boy, I mean, if it'll bring wisdom, who doesn't want wisdom? And so she took it, she ate it, and then notice the last phrase. Again, something we sometimes miss. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. In other words, Adam's standing there. And you're like, why isn't Adam saying something? Don't have a clue. But there he is. And the end result is that they both eat it. And instantly, instantly everything changes. Humanity rebels and sins against God. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And they start sowing. I don't know how they knew to sow. But they sow from fig leaves and they make their first coverings. Their eyes were open. They knew they were naked. You see, something interesting happens here. The consequence of sin, shame, is immediately felt. And we've all felt it. We probably all continue to feel it. Shame for saying something we shouldn't say. Shame for feeling something we shouldn't feel. Shame for doing something that we wish we could take back. And by the way, if you don't feel shame, that maybe should be a sign that you need to really take a look at yourself. Because the inability to feel shame probably tells you you're a lot further along than you thought you were. We've all seen the embarrassment of children. And they kind of realize they've messed up. I don't know that we adults are any better. Shame has a terrifying effect on our lives. Helping us to realize that, wow, I don't live up to the standard. Again, I've had people over the years say, bless if you knew what I've done and who I've been, you wouldn't like me very well. And my response is always, and if you knew what I'd done, what I've thought, who I've been, you wouldn't like me very well at all, either. Can we all be honest that we don't want our skeletons brought out of the closet? And we would all feel incredible shame if we did. And we'll see kind of where God goes with this at the end of our lesson this morning. But they feel the consequence of same shame right off the bat. You see, you go back to Genesis 2, 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Originally in the garden, no shame at all. Perfection. And now the very opposite of that. And of course, the end result is, is that they begin to hide. God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I love that text. And, and, and God can't find them. Of course, God could find him, but you know what I mean. Where are you? Uh, we, we heard you walking in the garden and we were ashamed because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? And of course the answer is yes. 
And, and, and of course, I, I love the response as soon as the answer was yes. I mean, Adam, have you eaten? And Adam's response is, well, the woman that you gave me. It's her fault. Well, ultimately, it's your fault. I mean, the first time we began to blame, and of course, the woman said, the, the serpent deceived me. We always want to blame somebody else. For me and June and our family goes back to a story we heard many, many years ago. We were, we were students at Freed Hardman. We had gone on a campaign. We were staying in the house of a doctor's family. And they had, I think it was June, three, four little kids. I think it was four. Four little children. The youngest one about two years old. The next one up, maybe four. Right on up, stair-step children. And the littlest one was still in diapers. And we were there one evening after we'd been out working during the day. We are getting ready for supper and, and the mom, turning to the littlest one, said, Have you messed in your britches? To which the little two-year-old said, No, Josh did it. His brother, next brother up. And June and I have never forgotten that. We laughed so hard. I mean, no, Josh did it. And here we are now, 40 years later, and whenever we need to blame someone, we blame it on Josh. Josh is the one that did it. I mean, two years old, you already know how to blame it on someone else. And that's what Adam and Eve did. And the end result, after hearing God and asking that question, making all the blames, because you have done this, because you have done this, and what we get is a very quick description of the fall. You know, oftentimes people will say, well, you know, the concept of the fall is really not found in the Old Testament. It's really not found in the Bible. Oh, yes, it is. Now, it may not be the fall that a lot of people believe that it is. But what we see is everything that God created all at once being changed dramatically. And you see God very quickly responding to the, to the woman. He says, I'll put enmity between the woman, between, uh, or the serpent, excuse me, speaking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll crush your head and you'll strike his heel. Oftentimes called the first announcement of the gospel, the proto-evangelium. And of course, when you turn over to the New Testament, places like Romans 6, you see Paul picking up on that image when he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean, the reverse of the fall is now taking place. And every time a believer responds to the gospel and obeys the gospel and becomes a child of God, Satan is crushed just a little bit more under our feet. And then he says to the woman, I'll make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband. He'll rule over you. And by the way, it's that first one as to why June and I only have two kids. When I first started dating June, I said, how many kids do you want? She said, 12. I said, that's kind of a few too many, don't you think? And she said, how many do you think? I said, why don't we just go with four? There had been four in my family. I thought four was a good number. And so she kind of agreed to that. We had our first one. And after our first one, she looked at me. She said, what about if we have three? And I'm like, okay, we, we, can, we can do three. And then we had our second one. And she looked at me. She said, that's it. I'm serious. That's it. And that's why we ended up with two sons. I mean, if God had not made it painful, we may have been 12 kids in our family, but not so. And then to Adam, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground. 
I mean, it's going to, it's going to bring forth thorns. It's going to bring forth thistles. And, and you will eat the plants of the field, not the fruit from the trees. And, of course, all creation becomes a part of that curse. One of the things I think we miss sometimes is this passage in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjugated it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. You see, we live in a world that's been literally put into slavery. Slavery to decay, which explains why bad things happen. You know, why do tornadoes destroy? Because the world is in bondage to decay. Why do people freeze to death in snowstorms? Because the world is in bondage to decay. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Earthquakes and fires. All of it because we live in a world, in a universe that's in bondage to decay. It's slowly winding down and slowly becoming worse. And it looks forward to its day when Genesis 21 says new creation will burst forth again. And by the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until you return to the ground since you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you'll return. And the end result is death now comes in as the destiny for all of us. For every one of us. And then God begins to act. And it's how Genesis 3 ends that is so amazing. Again, unpacking every bit of it. You could just spend hours and hours and hours talking about almost every verse. But a passage as simple as this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. And I don't know if you ever thought about it, but it's the first time that death actually occurs. It's not the death of a human being, but it's the death of an animal. And what God is doing is that God, in his first act of grace, makes a sacrifice. A sacrifice of one of those beautiful creatures that he had created in order to cover our shame. I don't know if you ever thought about that. The fact that we're here today, and what are we wearing? We're wearing clothes. Why? Because God wanted us first to be covered from our shame so that we could at least interact with one another. So we see God's first act of grace. And then God says that the man has now become like us in the sense that he knows right and wrong, good and evil. And he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Why? God, why do you, why do you take away the tree of life? And the answer is very simple. Do you really want God to leave us in the state we're in? I mean, God says, listen, I don't want you to be forever shackled in the fallenness that you have experienced. And so the end result is, I've got to fix it, but it's not going to be by you living forever now. I'm going to restore the tree, but not right now. And so the end result is, we're banished from the presence of God. Fellowship, at least that intimate relationship for the time being, is broken. But it's not going to stay broken. That's what we celebrated last month is the incredible incarnation of God himself in the form of Jesus who then, who then does something. You know, if the Bible had ended at the end of uh, Genesis 3, it would have been tragic, but it doesn't. 
Hebrews 12, the passage that Blake read just a few moments ago as we got started, is again one of those verses that if you're not careful, it just slips by you before you realize it. Look at what it says about Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But not just enduring the cross, but scorning its shame. He took all the shame that belonged to us and he heaped it on himself. I think sometimes we just don't realize what crucifixion involved and how shameful a torture and execution it was. And what did Jesus do? He scorned the shame. He endured the cross. He rose again. He sat at the right hand of God. And he decided it was time to make a change. And it's that passage found over in Galatians. Where Paul, no doubt, reflecting back on Genesis 3. And the fact that God needed to somehow cover the shame. So how did he cover it? He killed an animal took the skins and clothed Adam and Eve. But only in anticipation to a day when he would clothe us in a different way. I love the way he describes it. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Look at what he says. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, you've now put on Christ. You're now clothed in him. Shame? No. Sin? No. Only the image of God being restored until that day when he comes back and restores it completely. That's the message of the mission of God. And that's why we're here today. I don't know where you are in that process. I don't know if you're still in the shame. I don't know if you're still feeling the pain of sin. I don't know if the punishment that came down and the retribution has just torn your life up. I'm just here to tell you that there's a better way to live. And that way is to come back to God, to be restored to His image, and to do it through obedience to Jesus Christ. And it starts with Galatians 3, 26 and 27, something as simple as faith and baptism. If you need to be clothed with Christ, why don't you come and do that right now?